0: Welcome to the Smart Talk Series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk Series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in August of 2015. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Richard Duncan. Mr. Duncan majored in literature and economics at Vanderbilt University and went on to receive his master's from Babson College in International Finance. He was the global head of investment strategy at ABN AMRO Asset Management in London, a financial sector specialist at the World Bank, a consultant for the IMF, and was in charge of equity research at James Capel Securities and Solomon Brothers in Bangkok. Quite the resume, to say the least. Richard studies the trends leading up to recent crises and what causes them. He is the author of four books titled The Dollar Crisis, The Corruption of Capitalism, The New Depression, and his latest, The Money Revolution. In his free time, Mr. Duncan publishes a bi-weekly newsletter called Macro Watch, which offers analyses of current macroeconomic trends. The Henry George School joined Mr. Duncan to discuss how consumer credit shrank post-World War II debt, how the Federal Reserve dealt with stagflation, and how the U.S. transitioned from a domestic to a global economy and its impacts. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode.
1: How are you, Richard? Nice to have you on the show.
2: Uh, thank you, thank you. I'm well. Thank you for
1: having me. Yeah, well, first of all, I have to let everybody know that uh, we're such big fans of Richard Duncan that we use his material uh, extensively in our co- coursework now. And the reason be- being, you could read, you could read, two hundred books on what has gone on in the last thirty or forty years. And if you want the most concise, accurate description of what went on, you just read. Richard's books, especially the, the, new, the, the New Depression book. But my question to Richard is going to be this. Before we describe uh, a cursory outline of what happened from, uh, from 45 uh, to the present, I wanted to ask your opinion if you, if you think this was all serendipity or there was planning uh, to accomplish all the things that occurred, for example, the credit Creation and all of that. In other words, was there a geopolitical method to all this madness, or was this simply happenstance that uh, credit became uh, the new paradigm overrunning the real economy?
2: Okay, well, I think it's a very long story, and that it really did just evolve due to unfolding events. I really think that you can trace everything that's happened in this latest crisis all the way back to World War One. In World War One, all the European countries went to war with each other, and they didn't have enough gold to fight the war. So they went off the classical gold standard, they stopped backing their currencies with gold, and they started issuing a lot of paper money to finance the government bonds that they sold to buy war materials. So that was the collapse of the, the classical gold standard uh, in the First World War, 100 years ago and that set off a worldwide economic credit bubble that we call the roaring 20s uh, as all of the paper money that was created in world war one and all of the government debt that was issued to finance the war that created a great boom during the twenties and they say that was fun but in 1930 all of that credit couldn't be repaid and at that point then the uh, the international banking system collapsed, and global trade collapsed, and the world went into the Great Depression. And it stayed in a depression for 10 years, because the policymakers really had no idea what to do. They didn't really do very much about it. And they allowed market forces to reestablish a new market-determined equilibrium in the economy. And that's what happened without very much government intervention. But that equilibrium was at a level of GDP in the United States that was 46 percent below what it had been in 1929 and at a level of unemployment that ranged from 15 to 25 percent all during that decade and during that decade then the Germans took over Europe and the Japanese took over Asia and finally World War II started and when World War II started then out of necessity U.S. government spending increased by 900 percent just right off the bat and that, that huge expansion of government spending into the depression. But of course the, the war then killed 60, 50 or 60 million people. So it was really the necessity of World War II when the government took over absolute, complete control over the US economy. They took over all of the production, all of the distribution. They controlled all the prices, and of course they controlled labor, right down to sending people to war, to die. And so there was a complete government takeover of the economy in World War II, and things never went back to anything really resembling capitalism after that. After, after the war did end, instead of government spending being cut very substantially, what we've seen is that government spending has gone up really steadily, if not radically, if not exponentially, since World War II, starting with the Korean War and then the Vietnam War. So really, the government has been managing my, managing the economy, in my opinion, really going back at least to World War II. And, okay, that was not something that they chose to do, really. It was something that they had to do in order to survive the Nazis and the Japanese. And afterwards, they continued to do that and were ultimately able to defeat the Soviet Union that way but in order to do that they've had to really take complete control over the economy to a very considerable extent and there's, and during that process um, in 1968 they got to the point where they had to stop backing US dollars with gold because the US didn't have enough gold reserves left anymore so they broke the link between dollars and gold in 1968 and afterwards we had an absolute explosion of credit total credit expanded from one trillion dollars in in 1964 to now $59 trillion, and it's been that explosion of credit that's been driving economic growth in the last many decades.
1: Now, yeah, Richard, well, my question of course would be, why wouldn't the government have tried to go back to a real economy, uh, management of the economy, rather than pumping enormous amounts of credit into the system? After all, we won the war, where we've, now we've got a huge industrial capacity, real uh with twenty five percent of the output of the world, uh why would we have had to resort to uh uh extensive credit creation at that point in time? It's understandable during the Depression and during the war, the financing, but why continue that?
2: Well they were terrified that after the war ended, that the economy would go back into the Great Depression again if the government stopped spending. So at that point, by the time the war ended, the government debt relative to GDP was really quite high, above a hundred percent. And so what they seem to have done is they allowed the government debt to gradually diminish relative to GDP, but in order to drive the economy, they began to encourage more credit being uh, given to consumers. So consumer credit then began to grow very significantly. and. Uh, not too much longer after that then Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac became aggressive in in their lending programs and they issued a lot of debt and bought up a lot of mortgages and that fueled economic growth in the US especially say in in the 90s and up until 2007 so one way or the other they felt that it was necessary to keep the economy growing by expanding debt. Now part of this I think was government policy and part of it was just the way the market evolved when certain constraints were were lifted. Some of it was market evolution and some of it was government
1: policy. I see. But the the fact is that we had a strong real economy at least until uh, until the eighties and nineties, but we allowed, in effect, uh, outsourcing or giving up of our industries during that period. And that would have made it harder to, uh, for for consumers or workers, to pay any of the debts that were being incurred as part of the credit expansion uh, in the U.S. economy. Why did the government uh, encourage that or not stop that or look askance at at that not not interfere? So it's interesting, in the 1960s, during
2: President Johnson's administration, the U.S. government was spending a lot of money, both overseas on the Vietnam War and domestically through the Great Society programs, and that led to budget deficits and all of the spending overstimulated the U.S. economy, and that led to the high rates of inflation during the early '70s and up until the mid, well, throughout the '70s. So at that time we were still on the Bretton Woods system up until 1971. And under that system, trade between countries more or less had to balance. There were automatic adjustment mechanisms that ensured that trade between countries balanced. And so when the US government spent too much money, it overstimulated the US economy, and we quickly got to domestic bottlenecks to the point where we had full industrial capacity and full employment. And so we had wage-push inflation, and that led to wage spirals and inflation and double-digit inflation by the by the throughout the seventies which Paul Volcker eventually crushed with very high interest rates but then president Reagan was elected and he came in and had even bigger budget deficits than Lyndon Johnson had had and once again that caused the US economy to boom but what changed starting in nineteen eighty is that the United States started tolerating trade deficits. It allowed itself to have trade deficits with other countries. And soon those deficits became very large. So all of the government spending stimulated the U.S. economy, but it didn't lead to high rates of inflation because suddenly we didn't have a, just a domestic economy anymore. We had a global economy. The trade deficit hit 3.5% of U.S. GDP in the mid-'80s, By 2007, it had grown to 6% of GDP, which was $800 billion in 2006. It was $2 million a minute that the U.S. was going into debt to the rest of the world because of the U.S. trade deficit. So the government was able to stimulate the economy through large budget deficits and through pumping credit into the housing market through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and that pushed up home prices during the, the 90s and the early part of the 2000s and the higher home prices allowed the americans to extract equity from their homes and continue spending more and having a better standard of living in general even though their wages were flat to declining because globalization was resulting in the deindustrialization of the country so all the jobs went offshore but for quite a long time the standard of living continued to improve or at least not deteriorate because Fannie and Freddie were pushing up the home prices and allowing people to take equity out of their homes. And in that way, the the economy continued to grow. And as the US economy grew, the global economy grew. But uh, everything stopped in 2008 when we got to the point where the American households had so much debt that they couldn't repay it and started defaulting. And uh, we had a systemic collapse of the financial sector and it was only then that we we would have collapsed back into a new depression again had the government not intervened with trillion dollar budget deficits every year for several years in a row financed in large part by paper money creation by the fed quantitative easing on a trillion dollar scale
1: how does this help the american people in the long run when their job prospects are diminished because of the offshoring and you know china builds up a massive manufacturing capability, and they're doing it with uh, essentially uh, an undervalued currency, and uh, and just buying uh, American debt. Which uh, whether they ever cash in or not, make would make no difference to them. They'll have the industrial uh, apparatus. What do the Americans do in the long run in the face of this kind of strategy or outcome?
2: So I think the policy response they put in place after things blew up has been successful in really keeping what was a global bubble they've managed to keep it inflated now as far as your question about the long run well I I don't really think there's a lot of focus on the long run when it comes to government policy at this point I think they're just I think the philosophy that's guiding policy now and since 2008 is their belief that it's better to die tomorrow than die today Mm -hmm. and so they have managed to keep the bubble inflated and they're probably going to continue to try to keep it inflated um, for as long as they possibly can
1: and, and just but, hope for the best. But you know there's they, a limit to this. I mean, you yourself would know that it's an impossibility or else that means we can get something for nothing forever. So somewhere at the end of this rainbow, there's going to be a day of reckoning for somebody. your opinion, who would it be that's going to pay the price here?
2: Yes, I mean, I think that the way things are going, that this, as you say, this can't go on forever. But I do think it could go on for quite a number of years, still. I mean, consider Japan. Japan's bubble popped 25 years ago. And they have managed to stay out of depression, in large part because every year the Japanese government has had a very large budget deficit. And they've taken Japan's government debt, from 60% of Japan's GDP up to 250% of GDP. And they've managed to do this without causing inflation, because when you have a bubble and it pops, it tends toward deflation rather than inflation. And they've been able to finance these very large budget deficits with low interest rates. The yield on the 10-year Japanese government bond is only 50 basis points now. So since the U.S. crisis started in 2008 the government debt has gone up very significantly but even still it's only something only something like 100 percent of GDP or just a little bit over 100 percent of GDP so the U.S. economy is about 17 trillion dollars in size a little bit more than that so what that suggests is that the U.S. government could borrow and spend another 17 trillion dollars that it doesn't have through budget deficits
1: before it even hit 200% 200% government debt to GDP. Let me just say this, but the Japanese have always been net exporters during this period. So they always have had money to pay pay the interest on in any kind of debt. They would uh, they would they would incur. We do not have the net exports in our favor where we're, we're uh, negative exporters in, a, in effect. So they could tolerate more than we can. They've got they've got a means to pay for it. We, we have to pay for our deficits with more credit. So it might be a little different for us than them. Them one thing, and the next thing is, if they issue credit, if we're hollowing out our own manufacturing, where would the credit land to be productive in this country? Since you know major industries are, are gone, the real estate bubble—I mean—is there's, there's enough real estate uh, right now to cover uh, the country for the next few years? Where would we spend this extra credit? How would it filter in and in, in realize itself in the real American economy as it's now structured?
2: Yeah, very good points. Um, on your first point about Japan, you're right, they, they do have certain advantages that the U.S. doesn't have, their, their trade surplus. But on the other hand, the U.S. has advantages that Japan doesn't have. The U.S. has the dollar standard. And so when we have a big trade deficit, as we always do, this year it's Uh, I think something like $450 billion, Uh, every country's balance of payments has to balance. So when the U.S. has a trade deficit of $450 billion, it will have capital inflows of $450 billion to completely offset that trade deficit. So the way that works in practice is that the U.S. trade deficit results in dollars being thrown off into the global economy and into the trade surplus, countries like China. So the Chinese manufacturers sell their goods in the U.S., they get paid in dollars, they take the dollars back to China, and they'd like to convert these dollars into the local currency, the Chinese yuan. But if they did that in a free market, converted so many dollars, China's trade surplus with the U.S. is about $340 billion last year. Converting so many dollars into yuan would cause the yuan to skyrocket appreciate so sharply that that would kill China's export-led growth and kill their economy. So to prevent the currency there from appreciating, the Chinese central bank prints the equivalent of $340 billion worth of their own currency from thin air, just the way the Fed does through quantitative easing. But when they print their currency, they use it to buy the dollars coming into China at a fixed exchange rate. So the central bank ends up accumulating last year an extra $340 billion, roughly, which they then need to reinvest in U.S. dollar assets if they're going to earn any interest on them. So the bigger the trade deficit is, the more money that flows back into the U.S. And this reinvestment of the holdings of U.S. dollars by the trade surplus central banks ends up financing the budget deficit. So that's an advantage the U.S. has that Japan didn't have. And so far, so good. I mean, we've managed to finance something like six trillion dollars of deficits over the last, since 2008, and we have extremely low interest rates. And that seems like that's going to continue into the foreseeable future. We don't have any inflation because globalization is so deflationary. Now, if we, if free trade broke down or if we had some sort of international conflict with China, and we put up trade barriers against Chinese goods then suddenly we would have high rates of inflation in the US and that would make all of this paper money creation impossible normally when a central bank creates a lot of money it leads to very high rates of inflation but that hasn't happened because globalization is putting so much downward pressure on global wages US wages that is very deflationary you don't have to hire someone in Michigan and pay that person $200 a day to build a car anymore. You can hire someone in China and pay that person $10 a day. So this is dry, This is very deflationary. And it's offsetting all of the pressure, the inflationary pressure from the paper money creation. And it's created a, almost a, um, it's created what I believe is a unique moment in history where what we've seen over the last six years is it is possible for the U.S. government to spend trillions of dollars it doesn't have and to finance much of that by printing paper money without causing high rates of inflation. So now coming to the second part of your question about uh, where is this new credit going to go? I think to make this sustainable, the sensible approach would be rather than the US government borrowing and spending a lot of money on too much consumption and on a lot of unnecessary wars around the world, it would be much more sensible for the US government to borrow money and spend it, but spend it by investing it in new industries and new technologies that would probably allow the US economy to grow its way out of this crisis. I'd like to see them invest over the next ten years, I'd like to see the government invest a trillion dollars in solar energy, a trillion dollars in genetic engineering, a trillion dollars in biotech, a trillion dollars in nanotech, and a few other industries. And that sort of borrowing and spending, it would be like a series of NASA's NASA space program investments, and you can just imagine all of the benefits that would pour out of that in terms of new technologies, new innovation, uh, job creation, education uh,
1: expansion. Why wouldn't the uh, why wouldn't that money basically go to China, Germany, and Japan and Asia uh, to build all that solid product, since they have the capacity now and we don't? So what makes you think that although the idea makes, makes sense, if American industrial capacity essentially was intact, essentially it's not intact. And essentially that uh, within uh, only 10% of the population is engaged seriously in manufacturing, and everything else is a service, uh, medical or educational processing uh, type uh, industry. And the industries you're talking about are hard invest- investment industries, that product would immediately draw in the world manufacturing capability which does not exist here.
2: Well, of course, spending on the sort of scale that we're talking about would have to be planned over a a 10-year period. And so part of the money could be invested in um, universities and training PhDs and uh, advanced degrees so that the americans could transition into higher much higher skill set and then for, for instance the money i'd like to see invested in solar energy much of that would have to involve laying the you know the, the solar panels uh, across the united states and then building a grid coast to coast to transmit the the electricity through the current grid
1: is not doesn't work for solar. Again, I mean, th- th- those industries, uh, the solar panels could be easily made in, in Asia. The uh, the genetic engineering would, would fill the universities, and it's true, but that's, you're talking about the elite part of the American workforce. The bulk of the American people may not necessarily gain from that program, given that it's multinationals who will get all the contracts, and they'll, they'll decide where and how they'll invest the money. But over and above that, What if the Chinese finally get big enough, they think, and they're forming investment banks themselves, and they simply use the credit that that they have with us to create massive credit on their side and finally hook up, let's say, with India and Russia, and they become a reserve currency country. Then what does the United States do when it doesn't have a monopoly on credit creation at that point? In effect, they're short-circuited right out of the process that you've talked about.
2: Well, just one final word on the investment programs I described. Now, that's what I think ideally should be done, but in reality there's almost no chance of that occurring. So I think that would be a sensible approach, but I have very little hope that anything like that will occur. Now, in terms of China taking over as the, reserve, the country of reserve currency. Well, first of all, China, China's economy is in extreme trouble now. China probably has the biggest economic bubble in the world. And they're going to find it very difficult just to hold things together, I think. But in order to have a reserve currency, you need to get your currency out in the global economy. And to do that, you need to have trade deficits. The US dollar is a trade, is a reserve currency because we have such massive deficits, everyone's flooded with dollars. And so people have a lot of dollars to spend, so they spend dollars and dollars a global reserve currency. China has a massive global trade surplus, and so if they want their currency to be a reserve currency, first of all they're going to have to make a little bit more of it available by having a trade deficit which their economy is not geared to at all so I don't think there's any chance of China
1: replacing the dollar as the international reserve currency anytime soon. Well, at this point in time, then, if we're locked into being the reserve currency, uh, we certainly are the military power on the, on the globe to maintain stability, and we certainly are the financial power. All of this doesn't take a lot of people, American people, to do this. Maybe 10% of the population can run this system. What happens to the balance of Americans, especially if we don't have the Massive programs you, you've talked about. Their prospects for an increasing standard of living are not good at all, as far as I can see. Right or wrong.
2: Right. Yes, the outlook for the American public is very alarming. Its globalization has resulted in all of the manufacturing jobs being moved offshore. And that has resulted in the unions being more or less decimated. And and so the the potential, the the ability for the American, for the working class, and the middle class, to organize itself to ensure that there are politicians and policies put in place in Washington that benefit the middle class and the working class, They're, those are no longer available because there's no real way for the middle class and the working class to organize itself as it did when there were strong labor unions in the country. So that's why we've seen the shrinking middle class and the median income in the U.S. is hasn't is still the same it's roughly the same level now as it was in 1989. And
1: automation feeds into this. In addition, automation. That's right.
2: Automation potentially is going to also make um, far fewer people required on the assembly lines. So we'll we'll have to see what happens. I mean, ultimately if the economy, if the working people continue to see their standard of living go down, then they may eventually organize themselves and form a, a third party and put more pressure on the establishment to, uh, to put in place policies that would be more beneficial to them.
1: The question is, how would you distribute that taxation power of, uh, let's say, large profits, profits created by credit, how would you distribute it to, uh, to the population uh, without making it a, an obvious welfare system? Or is it, this is one of those things we have to wait and see how it evolves? What do you think?
2: Yeah, I think we're going to have to wait and see how it evolves. Right now there's very little indication that um, that is going to occur. I mean, things are not entirely dire over the last six years, at least, what we've seen with Obamacare, now 20 or 30 million more Americans have health insurance than before. That's a step forward. And also, the government is providing, I think over the last six years, the government has provided something like $600 billion of student loans that is making it possible for the students, more students, to, to go to university. Now, we'll see whether they'll be able to repay that. Maybe one day a lot of that money will just simply be written off. And so it's not, it's not all uh, doom and gloom in terms of the outlook for the Americans. I live in Asia. I've lived in Asia most of the last 25 years, and the standard of living in the United States is certainly still far ahead of uh, most of the rest of the world. So the Americans are not suffering too, too terribly at this stage, but the outlook for them is not very encouraging.
1: Where would you invest? What would you be doing to protect your future or your children's future given how you see everything and that you pretty well are the master of seeing it all here? One good investment is to
2: invest in land and houses. In other words, buy a house, on a half an acre of land at a, using a 15-year fixed mortgage lock it in at near historic low rates of interest over a 15-year period and rent it out and the place will nearly pay for itself over 15 years from the rental income and afterwards you will have a, a valuable asset that will generate cash flow for you forever afterwards.
1: Land in Asia, land in
2: America. Uh, land in the United States or Canada just because you have more control over it. In many countries, for instance, I, I live in Thailand. Foreign people are not allowed to buy land in, in Thailand.
1: Uh, Richard, thanks for the interview. It was very informative. Your works are fabulous. Everyone should read The New Great Depression. and sign up for my blog and you
2: can follow my work that way at richardduncaneconomics.com.
1: Thank you, Richard. Take care. Okay, thanks
0: a lot. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.